0: I have the opinion of the court in case 17965, Trump versus Hawaii. Under the Immigration and Nationality Act, foreign nationals seeking entry into the United States undergo a vetting process to ensure that they meet the legal requirements for admission. The act also grants the president authority to, quote, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens, end quote, whenever he finds that their entry would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. In September of this past year, President Trump issued a presidential proclamation stating that it was necessary to restrict the entry of nationals of countries that do not share adequate information with the United States to permit a reliable vetting process or that otherwise present national security risks. The entry restrictions reflect the results of a multi-agency review led by the Department of Homeland Security and the State Department. As part of that review, the agencies developed an information-sharing and public safety baseline for what is required from foreign governments to confirm the identity of their nationals. Homeland Security officials then collected data from all foreign governments and identified countries that were deficient in terms of their national security risk profile and willingness to share information. Following a 50-day period in which the State Department made diplomatic efforts to encourage foreign governments to improve their practices, the Acting Secretary of Homeland Security concluded that several countries remained deficient. After taking into account the circumstances in each country, the Acting Secretary recommended and the President agreed that entry restrictions should be placed on certain nationals from eight countries, Chad, Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen. The President explained in the proclamation that these restrictions were necessary to prevent the entry of those foreign nationals about whom the U.S. government lacks sufficient information and to encourage those foreign governments to cooperate. The proclamation imposes a range of restrictions on immigrant and non-immigrant travel that vary based on the circumstances in each country. It also directs the Department of Homeland Security to continue to assess whether the restrictions are necessary and to report to the President every 180 days. At the end of the first review period, the President determined that Chad had sufficiently improved its practices and lifted the restrictions on its nationals. A group of plaintiffs challenged the legality of the proclamation on several grounds. They argued first that the President lacked authority under the Immigration and Nationality Act, the INA, to issue the proclamation. They also asserted that the entry policy violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment because it was motivated not by concerns related to national security, but by a desire to exclude Muslims. We begin with the statutory arguments. Plaintiffs argue that the INA delegates to the President only a limited power to temporarily halt the entry of a narrow group of aliens engaging in harmful conduct. They say that the proclamation sweeps much more broadly and does not meet numerous other conditions set forth in in the statute. The key provision is Section 1182F, and that provision specifies that, and this is a quote, whenever the President finds – that the entry of any aliens or any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to, <coughs> to the interests of the United States, he may, by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants, <coughs> or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem appropriate." Now, by its terms, Section 1182F exudes deference to the President in every clause. It grants to him discretion to decide whether and when to suspend entry, whose entry to suspend, for how long, and on what conditions. The proclamation falls well within this sweeping delegation. The only prerequisite in the statute is that the President find that the entry of the covered aliens would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. The President has met that requirement here. He first ordered a worldwide multi-agency review of every country's compliance with an information and risk assessment baseline. He then issued a proclamation setting forth extensive findings describing how deficiencies in the practices of select foreign governments deprive the United States of reliable information to assess the risks posed by foreign nationals. The proclamation is more detailed than any prior order issued under Section 1182, Previous suspension orders by President Reagan and President Clinton explained their rationale in just a few sentences, while the 12-page proclamation thoroughly recounts the process, agency evaluations, and recommendations underlying the President's chosen, chosen restrictions. The proclamation also satisfies the remaining limits in Section 1182F. For example, the President is not required to spell out in advance a fixed end date for the entry restriction. Notably, not a single one of the 43 suspension orders issued prior to this litigation did so. In short, the language of Section 1182F is clear, and the proclamation does not exceed any textual limit on the President's authority. Plaintiffs focus most of their attention on other arguments about legislative history, executive practice, and the structure of the INA as a whole. We leave the details of those arguments to our opinion and simply note that none of them justifies departing from the perfectly plain meaning of Section 1182F. Plain's final statutory argument is that the proclamation violates another provision of the INA, Section 1152A, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of nationality in the issuance of immigrant visas. This argument, however, ignores the basic distinction between admissibility determinations and visa issuance that runs through the INA. Section 1182F and 1152A operate in different spheres. Section 1182 defines the universe of aliens who may be admitted into the United States and therefore are eligible for a visa. Once Section 1182 sets the boundaries of who may enter, Section 1152A bars discrimination in the allocation of immigrant visas. Now, in addition to the text of 1152A, which references the act of visa issuance alone, common sense and historical practice confirm that the provision does not limit the President's authority under Section 1182 to determine who may enter the country. In response to diplomatic disputes, both President Carter and President Reagan Broadly suspended entry on the basis of nationality. And on plainest reading, the President would not be able to suspend entry from a particular country in the event of an epidemic in that country, or even if the United States were on the brink of war with that country. In sum, the proclamation is squarely within the scope of the President's authority under the INA. Now that brings us to the establishment clause of the First Amendment. The clearest command of that clause is that one religion cannot be officially preferred over another. Plainists believe that the proclamation violates this prohibition by singling out Muslim-majority countries for disfavored treatment. They allege that the primary purpose of the proclamation was religious animus and that the President's stated concerns about vetting risks and national security were but pretexts for discriminating (coughs) against Muslims. Now, at the heart of the plaintiff's case is a series of statements by the President and his advisors casting doubt on the official objective of the proclamation. For example, while a candidate on the campaign trail, the President called for a, quote, total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the country, end quote, and that left that statement on his campaign website until May of 2017. Then-candidate Trump also stated that Islam hates us, and asserted that the United States was having problems with Muslims coming into the country. Shortly after being elected, when asked whether recent attacks in Europe had affected his plans to ban Muslim immigration, the president replied, you know my plans all along, I've been proven right. And in November of this past year, the president retweeted links to three anti-Muslim propaganda videos. The President of the United States possesses an extraordinary power to speak to his fellow citizens and on their behalf. Our presidents have frequently used that power to espouse the principles of religious tolerance on which this nation was founded. In 1790, George Washington reassured the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island that happily the government of the United States gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, and requires only that they live under who, only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. President Eisenhower, at the opening of the Islamic Center here in Washington, similarly pledged to a Muslim audience that America would fight with her whole strength for your right to have your own church, declaring that this concept is indeed a part of America. And just days after the attacks of September 11, President Bush returned to the same Islamic Center to implore his fellow Americans to remember, during their time of grief, that the face of terror is not the true faith of Islam and that America is a great country because we share the same values of respect and dignity and human worth. Yet it cannot be denied that the Federal Government and the Presidents who have carried its laws into effect have, from our earliest days, performed unevenly in living up to those inspiring words. The issue before us today is not whether to denounce the statements. It is instead the significance of those statements in reviewing a presidential directive neutral on its face, addressing a matter within the core of presidential authority. In doing so, we must consider not only the statements of a particular president, but also the authority of the presidency itself. Plaintiff's challenge proceeds on the assumption that this case is no different from the typical establishment clause case, Relying on tests to evaluate holiday displays and graduation ceremonies, plaintiffs argue that national security directives, like the proclamation, should be reviewed under a free-ranging inquiry that probes the sincerity of the President's stated justifications for the policy, with the Court deciding for itself the validity of national security and foreign affairs concerns. Such an approach is directly inconsistent with our cases governing review of the political branches in the national security and foreign affairs context. We have said that any rule of constitutional law that would inhibit the flexibility of the President to respond to changing world conditions should be adopted only with the greatest caution. In addition, this Court has recognized for more than a century that judgments on matters of entry and immigration in particular, this is a quote, are frequently of a character more appropriate to either Congress or the executive. As a result, when U.S. citizens raise any constitutional challenge concerning the entry of foreign nationals, we have said that it is not the judicial role to weigh the justifications of immigration policies. Instead, under a case called Kleindienst versus Mandel, this court applies a more constrained standard of review. Now, under the usual application of Mandel, we would ask only whether the proclamation is facially legitimate and bona fide. Under that standard, this case would be at an end. For our purposes today, however, we assume that we may give the plaintiffs the benefit of a more intrusive review and will look behind the face of the proclamation to the extent of applying rational basis scrutiny. We thus will consider the President's statements concerning Islam but will uphold the policy so long as it is rationally related to the government's stated objective to protect the country and improve vetting processes. Government policies typically survive such review unless they are, this is a quote, divorced from any factual context from which we could discern a relationship to legitimate state interests. That's what we said in a case called Romer against Evans. The proclamation does not fail under that settled test. It says nothing about religion and is expressly premised on a legitimate interest in preventing the entry of foreign nationals who cannot be adequately vetted and encouraging other nations to improve their practices. Plaintiffs emphasize that five of the seven countries subject to restrictions have Muslim-majority populations, but that fact alone cannot support an inference of religious hostility. The policy is limited, after all, to countries that were previously designated by Congress or prior administrations as posing national security risks. Moreover, the proclamation reflects the results of a worldwide review process undertaken by multiple Cabinet officials and their agencies. Plaintiffs challenge the conclusions of that review, arguing that entry suspension will not serve national security interests. We, of course, do not defer to the Government's reading of the First Amendment But the executive's evaluation of facts in this sensitive context is entitled to appropriate weight. Some of the amikis supporting the plaintiffs suggest that accepting the government's national security justification here would be to repeat the wrongs of Korematsu versus United States. Korematsu has nothing to do with this case. Korematsu upheld the forcible relocation of U.S. citizens to concentration camps, solely and explicitly on the basis of race. That order was objectively unlawful and outside the scope of any presidential authority. But it is wholly inapt to liken that morally repugnant order to a facially neutral policy denying certain foreign nationals the privilege of admission. The entry suspension at issue here is an act that could have been taken by any other president. The only question is evaluating the actions of this particular president in promulgating an otherwise valid uh, proclamation. In any event, the invocation of Korematsu in this case does afford this Court the opportunity to take action too long delayed and make express what is already obvious. Korematsu was gravely wrong the day it was decided, has been overruled in the Court of History, and, to be clear, has no place in law under the Constitution. Other features of the entry policy provide additional support for the government's claim of legitimate national security interest. For example, the proclamation emphasizes that its conditional restrictions will remain in force only so long as necessary. And in fact, since the President introduced entry restrictions in January of last year, three Muslim majority countries, Iraq, Sudan, and Chad, have been removed from the list of covered countries. Taken together, there is sufficient evidence that the proclamation is reasonably related to an independent national security justification. The judgment of the Court of Appeals is accordingly reversed and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. Justice Kennedy has filed a concurring opinion. Justice Thomas has filed a concurring opinion. Justice Breyer has filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Kagan has joined. Justice Sotomayor has filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Ginsburg has joined.